now. Very katoa. Greetings, everyone. Um, so, to wiki or to reo Māori this week, Māori Language Week. So, I'm just going to um, give my new. I'm practicing my new greeting. So, tēnā tātou katoa e hui mai, e hui mai na tēnā ata. Greetings to all that have gathered here this morning. So, I'm going to keep practicing that one, and I encourage you to learn something new this week for Māori Language Week. But before we get underway, we'll begin with a karakia. I'm Andrew, the Learns Field Trip Teacher, and it's just gone 9.45. On Monday morning, <coughs> the 9th of September, and you'll hear it's upstairs from the Russell Museum. And next to me is Andrew Blanchard from the Department of Conservation. And he is our expert for the web conference this morning. We've also got some critters with us. We've got Casey from, um, uh, gosh, I've forgotten the name of the school, Waikawa Bay, of course. Casey from Waikawa Bay. Uh, Eddie the Phil, who's uh, my mascot, ambassador. And Lamington from uh, Kohia Terrace School. And I, I thought Lamington was a, a lamb, but of course it's two L's, so it's a llama. Very cute. Okay, so the ambassadors are having a great time. And you can check out their pages tomorrow to see what they've been up to. Um, we've got our speaking school this morning, which is St. Patrick's. Patrick's Catholic School. So it's wonderful to have you here this morning and a warm welcome to all our listening schools as well. It's great that you can all join us. There's plenty of you here. So I hope you enjoy the web conference this morning. We won't have time for uh, extra questions in today's web conference. It's just a speaking school only because this web conference will be followed by our Te Reo Māori web conference. So we're going to get underway and um, we will start with our first question from St. Patrick's. And just a reminder, if you can introduce yourself with your first name and ask your question nice and close to the microphone so we can hear you clearly, let's have question one, please. Good morning, I'm Kate, and my question is, how did archaeologists know where to start looking for the pieces of history in the first place? Good question, Kate, thank you. Oh, kia ora, Kate. So we actually, we look at a lot of different things. We look at... Um, historical records, things that have been written down. We listen to um, what Komatu and Queer tell us. And then we also do some field work. So we walk around and we look for things. Um, and the site that we're looking at today at Mangahawia, um, it was actually someone walking along a beach and they saw some moa bone and seal bone and kuri, dog bone, eroding out of the beach. And that made us all very interested and excited to get in and have a look. Right, so just... Um some, again, so sometimes it can just be members of the public. Yep. Yeah. Right. So keep your eyes peeled, guys. <laughs> Thanks for that first question, Kate. Um, really looking forward to going to Mangahawia this morning and um, learning more about uh, that site. Can we have question number two, please? Oh, this is Morena. from Miss, Miss Moike. Moike. <laughs> Morena. Um, yes, I'm Miss Moike. And my question is, what kind of tools do archaeologists use? And what is the purpose of the red and white ruler in the picture? Oh, well, more than that. Um, yeah, sure. 
we actually use a wide range of tools. Um, everything from diggers, quite large diggers, all the way through to paintbrushes and toothpicks. It kind of depends on what we're digging. Um, generally, once we've got the trench or our holes open, we use trowels. Um, so these are um, little pointed bits of metal um, that allow us to move earth very slowly um, so that we don't damage or break anything that's really fragile. Um, and the red and white scale in the picture. I'm just, I'm just getting that picture for, for Andrew <laughs> to have a look at. So just we, we, we tend to use them all for the same purpose. Um, it's, we actually use it as a scale um, so that when we come back after we finish digging, we know how big everything was. So the scale that's in that picture is about a meter long. Um, and each of the white or red stripes is um, 10 centimeters, 100 mils long. So it means that we can work out how big something was after we finished digging. I think I've accidentally cut this out. <sighs> it shouldn't have happened. Sorry, Andrew. It's all good. Well, I just, I, I didn't do anything. I just went to open up a different um, window, but um, just to show Andrew the picture. What's on that? Oh, oh, here we go. Sorry, no, we are here. <laughs> I couldn't find us. Sorry, guys. <clears throat> Don't panic. All right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Lamington's fault. Um, all right. Okay. It was a bit funny because I, I was showing Andrew the picture that um, you're referring to and we lost you and then I couldn't find you and I thought I'd lost you altogether. So anyway, we're up to question three, guys. Hi, I'm Jasmine. And my question is, when did the archaeologists find the mole bones? Oh, kia ora, Jasmine. So we found them both before we started excavating, before we started digging everything, um, but also we found them in, in our excavations and we found them in several places, including in a really big hungy pit. So we know people were eating them, but we also found a lot of moa bone that have been used as tools. And if you've read the background page about Mangahawea, it says that that's an indication that's a very early mm. site because of the fact that moa died out within 200, yeah. approximately 200 years of human habitation. Yeah. So we use it as a marker that tell us that something's old. Mm. or very old as opposed to just a little bit old. Thanks, Jasmine. Can you guys at the back hear that? So we're up to question four, please. St. Patrick's. Um, hello, I'm Isabella. And my question is, how did they carve the obsidian rock and shells? Hi, Isabella. Um, the obsidian is quite an interesting one um, because it's a really, really hard rock. So the best way to start that is you actually put it in a fire and you get it really, really hot and then you drop cold water on it. And the rock naturally fractures along its weakest points. And you can then vary with another rock, um, you can just work the edges so that you get a nice sharp blade. So obsidian was generally used for cutting. Um, and then for shells, it depends what you wanted to make. Um, you could drill out a shape so that you could create a fish hook or you can um, sharpen the edge so that once again, you could use it as a cutter or a plucker. Great. Okay. Thanks, Isabella. So we're up to question number five. Hello, my name is Hannah. And my question is, 
What were the oral traditions held by Ngāti Kūta? Oh, kia ora, Hana. There were um, a lot. Um, we've been very fortunate to work with um, Ngāti Kūta and Patu Kehara on this project. And our kaumātua, Matu Clendon, um, has been able to share a lot of his um, stories about the island. He actually grew up on the island when he was a boy. Um, and so when we found, in the archaeology, we found a, a big pet-shaped structure um, that was probably used for storing kumara. And when we showed this to Matu, Matu was able to look at it and go, oh, well, well this is how we built our kumara pits when, when he was a boy, when he was only young. And this is how we got in and out of them. So actually having his discussion on site um, really helped us with interpreting what we were seeing um, and working out how things were used. And there's also um, some of the names of places, mm. not, not just around Mangahawia, but in the bay, point to those old traditions of the, mm. the early sailings. Yeah. So um, Matu's got a lot of those, mm. um, that sort of knowledge, and um, including places like Roko Manga Manga, which is our main manga in the bay on the southern end. Um, it's one of the points that when the Polynesians were first coming down from the Pacific looking for land, that they could, they could see it far out to sea, and so they knew where to land. So Matu's got a lot of that sort of um, history um, in his head, and by allowing him to, well, by sharing that with us, it means that our interpretations of the site are a lot better. Yeah, you say it must be, it's not just you guys looking for the information mm. in the ground, it's, yeah. it's also that, that precious information that's been passed mm. down so valuable without without the history and that's both the history that people speak and also the history that's written down um it really helps to flesh out um what we can talk about a site thanks jasmine uh, sorry hannah <laughs> um so up to question six Kia ora. my name is Julia and my question is where did the archaeologists find the power shell? Oh, kia ora Julie. My, the, we found the power in all sorts of places. Um, it's a little bit like the Moa bone. Um, we found it where people were cooking, um, we found it where people were eating, but we also found where it had been discarded um, in what archaeologists called middens, but you can basically think of as big rubbish pits. Um, but some of the um, some of the power that we found was really quite big, much bigger than we can find in the bay now. We we don't really find power up here very much anymore. They've all been eaten. Oh, you don't know where to look. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. Um, so no, it's um, we we find them everywhere. They were a very popular food, just like they are now. Yeah, for sure. All right, so there you go, Julia. All over the place. A little bit scarce these days, though, up in Northland. Uh, question seven now, please, St. Patrick's. Morena, I'm Lucy, and my question is, why did they make fish hooks and tools out of, of shells and obsidian rocks? Oh, Morena, Lucy. Um, they used the shells and rocks and also wood um, because those were the materials that were around. Um, back, in, back in those days, there was no metal around, and so... Things that we use metal for, we have to use, um, they had to use wood and shell for. So shell especially is quite easy to shape and it makes really good um, fish hooks. Um, obsidian is really sharp. In fact, obsidian is so sharp 
that modern surgeons, modern doctors will use it in operations even now um, because it's such a sharp tool. I always sort of thought the shells wouldn't make very good fish hooks because the, the, it's not strong enough. Um, you look at the, the bits of the shell that they use with the really, really thick bits. Right. Um, right up um, at the, especially if you're looking at power, up at the, uh, the naku, the really rounded bit. Um, that it's actually very strong. Um, and the way that they shape them with the grain of the shell meant that the forces, when the fish comes and takes the hook, was pulling on the strongest part of the shell. Okay. That said, we did find quite a few broken ones. <laughs> but then we found some very, very big fish jewels. Yeah. Like fish that I would be very happy to pull up. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Similarly, with the power sizes these days, that perhaps the fish sizes reduced somewhat too mm. over, over time. Yeah. Um, very good. We'll go on to question eight. Question eight, please, St. Patrick's. Doing a great job this morning. Hi, I'm Harrison, and my question is, what tools did they make, and why did they change? Hey, Harrison. They made lots of different tools, um, and that was, they made them out of wood and stone and bone, um, and it was really everything that you use in your everyday life. Um, they made tools to do the same things. So there was, they had hammers and they had things for digging, um, for stitching clothing together, cloaks together, um, for fishing and hunting. So everything that you think about if you went camping, um, they had tools to use as well. Um, yeah, they changed because over time the environment changed, the resources, and the birds that were available changed. Um, and so I'm sure as you know, if you go fishing, if you want to catch a little fish, you might use a net or a small hook. If you want to catch a big fish, you need to use a bigger hook and you probably need to go on a bigger boat out further. So just like us, if you, if you change what you're trying to do, you need to change the tools that you're using. Because one of the things that change, and there's no evidence of fishing nets because they probably mm. haven't been able to survive for that long, um, but the there's um, written accounts of net, big nets that were seen when mm. Europeans arrived, and which were likely used yeah, and it, uh, but, as opposed to hooks. Yeah, because if you think about how many fish you can catch in a net, it's a lot more than you can catch on a hook. Um, and so if you're trying to feed a lot of people, it's much better to go out with a big net. But some of these nets that were um, seen when Cook arrived were absolutely enormous. Some of them were over a kilometer long. So I'm not sure if you guys are doing running races and stuff, but a kilometer is a really, really long way to run. <laughs> you think about how big that net would be. And some of them were over 300 meters deep. So these were enormous nets that were going to be able to bring in lots and lots and lots and lots of fishes and probably feed a whole village just from one fishing trip. What were they made out of? Um, so the, they were woven, and so they were made out both of um, harakeke, out of flax, but also out of the fibers that you see in the tea tree, um, in the um, tea tree, the cabbage trees. Um, you, you pull that apart and it makes a very, very strong fiber. Mm. Fascinating. Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, I forgot his name because it's different to the one I put mm. down here, but that's all right. Good job. Um, Question nine. nine was Harrison before. Harris, thank you, Harrison. Glad somebody's listening. <laughs> thank you, Barry. Hi, my name is Simon. My question is 
was it hard for the Polynesian for the Polynesian people to adapt New Zealand's climates like winter? Oh, kia ora, Simon. Um, I'm not sure hard is the right word, but there was a lot of adaption that had to happen very quickly. If you've come from an island where there's only really nice sandy beaches and you're suddenly confronted with snow, that would be quite something. Um, in fact, Waka got so far south that they actually encountered ice in the water, which means they must have been very, very far south. Um, but the word they actually used for the floating ice was very similar. It was the floating white coral is the rough translation. Um, but the reason I say I don't, I'm not sure how hard they found it is because of how fast they moved all around the country. Within um, the first couple of years we, um, that people arrived, we know that they discovered all um, three main islands so of, of the country. They stopped, they found Obsidian, they found um, Pornamu down the deep south, all very, very quickly. So they traveled around very fast. Um, and I don't think they would have been doing that if they'd found it hard to do so. But it was very different from where they'd come from. I mean, <clears throat> if people are going to be uh, leaving their home and traveling, you know, hundreds of kilometers mm. across an ocean, you're going to have to be, you know, pretty, pretty switched on. Yeah. Um, in the first place. Yeah. If you, uh, if you, if you're traveling 3,000 or more kilometers in a walker, a couple of hundred kilometers around our coast isn't much of a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And of course there was no one here. So um, there would have been an abundance of food and materials um, that they would have very quickly learned how to yeah. get hold of. Hey, thanks, Simon. Um, it brings us to our final question this morning from St. Patrick's School, number 10. Hi, I'm Belle. And my question is, what does it mean that one piece fish hooks as a tool become less prominent through time? Well, Annabelle, I think I, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, if you're trying to catch fish for a lot of people, it's much easier to use a net rather than a hook. Um, but some of this is also as people got used to our environment here. So up in the in Polynesia, a lot of the fishing is um, with hooks on the outer reef. You're in really, really deep water um, to catch those big fish. Where in our harbors up here, up in Paifairangi, up in the bay, but also as you move further down into Auckland, um, those harbors are shallower, but we still get big fish in them. But you, so you can catch fish using nets, which is a lot quicker to get a lot of food for a lot of people. So that's as, as people, as the population in New Zealand grew, and as we got, as the Polynesians became Maori and got used to the environment that they were living in, they adapted um, the tools and fish hooks. You still find them, but they're not nearly as common. Well, great stuff. Thank you very much, St. Patrick's School, for your questions this morning, and to Andrew uh, Andrew Blanchard from the Department of Conservation for your fantastic answers. I'm looking forward to talking more with Andrew as we go to Mangaharia today and find out more about um, about the the area and the archaeological excavations that have taken place there. So <clears throat> you will be able to listen to this web conference again. It is recorded. Um, be on the lookout tomorrow for our first videos and have a look at my, um, my diary and have a look at the images from today as well. They'll be available tomorrow. Um, we've got our Te Reo Māori web conference next. So we're going to do leave you now you feel free to stay on and listen to that
but um, we need to make time now for those guys to set up. So um, join us again for tomorrow's web conference. It'd be great to have you on board. Another fantastic uh, discussion awaits us then. Barry in the web, uh, the Learns office will now unmute you all and you can say a big ka kite anō. 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 Kite an